reading from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his external power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. This is the word of the Lord. This is not a sermon that I actually planned as a part of this series, but as I was preparing and then bringing the sermon last week, I kept bumping into Romans chapter 1, and I realized I could either make a very, very long sermon last week or probably what amounts to two, one last week and one this week, which will both be a little bit on the long side. But it's not a sermon I'm all that excited about preaching either. There are some that you just gravitate towards those texts, and there are others that inevitably cause a little bit of trepidation when you approach them. And this is one, not because it's not God's word, it definitively is the word of the Lord, just as Glenn said for us a moment ago, and not because it's not important. It is. We need to hear this, especially in the times in which we live. But in these times, this message that Paul is trying to get across here in Romans chapter 1 is problematic kind of on both sides. There's a ditch on both sides of this road, and if we get off the road, we can fall into either one. We can take certain parts of this text out of context, and we can use it like a hammer to beat people over the head, or we can ignore those same parts and pretend that they're not there and pretend that our culture has given us reason to disregard the very word of God. So I want to try to deal with this in kind of a sensitive way. We're not doing a series on Romans. We're doing a series on Genesis. But Romans chapter 1 addresses the creation and the purpose for which God made this world. As if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth were not enough, we have this word in Romans. We also have Lord's Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which gives a clarification of the faith of the church on the subject of creation. We are asked there, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker or creator of heaven and earth? And we're taught to answer that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing, ex nihilo, created heaven and earth and everything in them, not only did he create them, but he still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence is my God and Father because of Christ, his son. One thing that we need to be really clear on here is that chance has no place whatsoever in creation. There's nothing about this world that God made that is random. There is nothing that is happening by chance. God the Father has created all things. 
we'll be discussing the mechanisms of creation perhaps a little bit more in the future. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now um, my personal bias on this subject, my personal understanding of Scripture is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, that God, out of nothing, made the world and everything in it in the space of six days and all very good. I believe that this creation was made by God according to the timetable that God has given us in the book of Genesis. I know that there are alternative points of view on that. Um, and I suppose that's okay unless you want to claim to be a Christian and still involve chance. There is no such thing as chance. There is creation and there is providence. God made all things of nothing according to his powerful word. And whatever happened after that moment in Genesis 1 when he said, let there be light and there was light, everything that happened happened according to the sovereign word and power of God. If we don't believe that, at least that, we really have kind of an awkward time claiming to be Christians who believe what the Bible says. The Belgic Confession is even more specific when it says in Article 1, we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. And then in Belgic Confession Article 2, it continues, we know him. We know this God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, and unchangeable. We know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Creation, he made all things by the word of his power. Preservation, we're told in Colossians that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. And government of the universe. All things were made by him and for him and through him and to him. And we see him there in creation if we take the time to look since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures great and small are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. His eternal power and divinity as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. All these things are enough to convict men and leave them without excuse. The Belgic Confession was no doubt influenced by John Calvin, who wrote in his Institutes, indeed, his essence, God's essence, is incomprehensible. Hence his divineness far escapes all human perception, but upon his individual works he has engraved unmistakable marks of his glory, so clear and so prominent that even unlettered and stupid folk cannot plead the excuse of ignorance. So in the Belgic Confession, without excuse. In Calvin, without excuse. Both of those were drawing directly from the scripture that Glenn read for us just a few moments ago. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. So we're not just talking about 
God's existence, the fact that there is some sort of a supreme being somewhere. We're talking about God, the God of Scripture, and we are talking about his eternal power and divine nature, his being and attributes. And these have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, of course, one could ask, who does the author mean by they? And the answer to that question really is us. All of mankind. God has clearly shown what can be known about himself by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, and we stand before him without excuse. Now, clearly, this is really what we might call an inconvenient truth. Because it means that from the Garden of Eden throughout all of history down to this very day and to the end of this world as we know it, all of humanity has stood before the Lord offering one excuse after another. Go back to that story. We'll get there eventually in the series on Genesis where Adam and Eve fall into sin. And it's almost humorous where God comes to them saying, Adam, where art thou? And Adam says, well, I, I was afraid and I hid because I knew that I was naked. And there's this whole story that goes on. But as that story unfolds, Adam begins to offer an excuse. Well, the woman, come on, God, she was kind of your idea. And the woman that you gave me, well, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And Eve's like, well, yeah, but the snake, huh? You know, and... All through human history, people have tried to offer God one excuse after another for why we refuse to worship him, because at the bottom line, that's what we're talking about here this morning. So clearly, the author, when he says they, is speaking in broad strokes of the whole world, which would include everyone who is outside of Christ, certainly, but all of us were at one time dead in our trespasses and sins and children of wrath by nature, even as the rest. And along comes the Apostle Paul speaking to those excuses that we have offered, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and saying, for his invisible attributes, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. God speaks in a clear way in his word, Anyone who tries to muddle things up or muddy things up by saying, well, you know, we can't really always understand it, is not being honest to the text. And God speaks in a clear way in his world as well. And his attributes have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. And no one likes that. We don't like the implications for ourselves. We don't like the implications for the world in which we live. It smacks of judgment. It smacks of original sin. By the way, it kind of resonates with both of those items because that is, in fact, what it's talking about, but more on that in a bit. We don't like to think in those terms that every human being in this world Every human being who has ever lived has had this divine revelation of God in the creation. And in the end, if they turned away from that, 
is responsible and without excuse. We would prefer to think of humans as tabula rasa, blank slates, born not only innocent, but neutral. Computers, machines that just need to acquire enough data, and if we could just get all the information, then we independently could make wise and informed choices. Is there a God, or even a God with a small g, who created all things? Well then, let him or her or it make itself known, and then we will decide whether or not that God is worthy of our worship. But here's the thing. There is a God who made all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And he has made himself known. He has spoken in a clear way and has called us to himself. And he is worthy not only of our worship, he is worthy of all worship. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then Isaiah verse six, chapter 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Heaven declares the glory of God. The earth is full of that glory. It's in that light that Paul writes, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So if you want to take the part of fallen humanity and say, well, how can God hold them accountable for something they didn't know, then you have to deny that God actually did show it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. The next question question that we might draw from this text becomes whoever they are, and hopefully we understand at point that they are us, why do we need an excuse? What is it about this world and about our lives in this world that makes us need to offer some kind of a justification or an excuse before the throne of the living God. And that answer, too, is found in the text that we read this morning because there are two revelations, apocalypto, in Romans chapter 1. You'll see the word translated revelation in the, the English Standard Version. And both of them are found in, in those verses that Glenn read for us. First, verses 16 to 18, Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, we're not doing a series on Romans, but you almost have to. Because when Paul uses that term gospel, evangelion, he's not using a term that has no content. And he'll spend most of the rest of this book defining what the gospel means. But he starts off here saying you can find fault with it if you choose to do so, but I'm not ashamed of it. Because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
So first, the first revelation we're talking about here is in the gospel, and it is the revelation of God's righteousness. Paul is not ashamed of it. He's not embarrassed, and we should not be embarrassed by it either. In this world, we're going to encounter situations where we are seeing things which are clearly contrary to what God says in his word. And our tendency is always to just, well, let's let's just back away from that. Let's not talk about that, at least not too specifically, as if we are embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel was given to actually set right those things that are wrong, to make men and women new, to regenerate their hearts, to bring them into a saving faith where their lives are completely renovated through the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's so much in that short paragraph that I can't even break the surface this morning, let alone do a deep dive. But we're told right on the surface that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the only gospel that Paul knew, the word of the living God reveals the righteousness of God. And because it reveals the righteousness of God, it is God's power of salvation to all who believe. Great. But salvation from what? Why do we need salvation? Why do we feel compelled to offer up an excuse of one kind or another, either for ourselves or for others? Well, that's the other revelation that's spoken of here in this passage. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now notice the symmetry of the text here. The righteousness of God is revealed in verse 17, and as the righteousness of God is revealed, so is the wrath of God. As the righteousness of God is revealed, the unrighteousness of man stands out in contrast to it, and God reveals his wrath in the gospel and in the world. Like I said, Paul will spend most of the next 10 chapters explaining the gospel, but before he does so, he explains the reason we need the gospel, the reason that we need salvation is because not only in word, but also in creation, we know, we feel, we experience the wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is not unlike Lord's Day 1 in the Heidelberg Catechism, which gives us the gospel first, the good news, right off the bat. I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. I wonder how many people recite that answer without ever stopping and think, well, is there really a devil and does he have some sort of a tyrannical rule over us that we need to be delivered from? The catechism says there is and he does and so do the scriptures. But in order to know This salvation, in order to know this grace, we're told in the very next question and answer that first we need to understand and comprehend how great my sin and misery are. Now that's not the main point 
of the Catechism or of the Book of Romans, although as I was reflecting on that, I thought maybe in one sense that is the point because points are sharp and when they stick us, they hurt. Points are what hurts, but it's the pain that leads us to the remedy and understanding our sin and our misery even the way that we naturally try to suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. It's a painful thing. If it's not painful, then I'm not sure we're really talking about the same thing here. But if we are to truly worship God in the joy of our salvation, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's necessary for us to understand the nature and the extent of that from which we have been saved in order to glory and rejoice in our salvation. You know, what we've been saved from, the tyranny of the devil and all of that. We see it in verses 21 to 25. They are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now this passage is, like I said, painting with a really broad brush. There's aspects of this that can be applied to us as individuals, certainly, but the message of this passage is looking at the course of human history or the course of history in various places and times, and it's all the same. But he's saying they knew God. Adam and Eve knew God. He walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. He spoke to them. They experienced the reality of his presence and his power in their lives. They knew him. And you would think if in Scripture every single sinful fallen human being who ever encountered the presence of God fell down on their knees or their face as dead and worshipped him, you would think that this perfect man and this perfect woman in this perfect environment who knew God would honor him as God, but they did not. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. In other words, they did not worship him. Because that's what honoring and giving thanks is all about. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We need to remember that this is the very definition, biblically, of foolishness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or actually is wisdom. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good, according to Psalm 53, verse 1. Incidentally, Paul will quote that very passage just a little bit over in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, to make the point, and it is a pointed point, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no one is being singled out here. All have sinned. But the sin of all and all sin is patterned after the original. I know if you talk about original sin with some people, some people are going to say, well, it's pride. That's what we've always heard. Pride is the original sin. John tells us in his letter, sin is lawlessness. I've always been inclined to say no sin is, is disobedience. The first sin was not 
pride, the first sin, was when they actually took the fruit and took a bite out of that. But what we see here is that this prideful disobedience, I think that's fair, boiled down to a matter of failing to worship, failing to honor God and be thankful. That's original sin. God created us for his glory. We were created to worship God. That's a point of our existence. And when Adam and Eve said, we're not going to worship God, we're not going to honor him, we're not going to be thankful for all the blessings of this garden in which we live, we are going to go our own way, we are going to make our own decisions, and if the fruit looks good, we're going to eat it. We don't care what God thinks. That's ultimately a failure to worship, to honor God. And it's at the heart of all disobedience to God, the unwillingness to honor him through grateful obedience to his command. See this in the Ten Commandments, the part that talks about honor your father and mother. Well, how are you supposed to do that? Do you honor your father and mother by disobeying them? Obviously not. You honor them by hearing their words and putting those words into practice. The same is true with God, our Father. We honor him when we live in grateful obedience to his commands. Otherwise, we claim to be wise, but in going our own way, we deny God, and in denying God, we suppress the truth, and we make ourselves the worst kind of fools. I want to be a little careful with this, but I find this to be one of the things when we are looking at truth, put that in quotation marks maybe, that comes from people who say there is no God. Yes, there's such a thing as common grace, and occasionally they will stumble into or over the truth, but we have to be very, very careful with that. Because someone who says there is no God, I don't care how intelligent they are, how high their IQ, they are a fool. And we need to keep that in mind as we listen to truth that comes from other sources. That's why Francis Schaeffer talked about true truth. The truth that we can count on is truth that has come from God. Now again, watch the symmetry. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, other th things as well. But note that as they, as we, turn from the immortal, invisible, only wise God as he has revealed himself in the things that he has made, what happens is we stop worshiping him and we begin to worship the things that he has made. So the things that God created in order to point people to himself, become little gods to people who are so determined to deny the existence of God, they would rather worship themselves, they would rather worship animals, they would rather worship bugs, they would rather worship anything other than the God who calls them to true holiness through faith in him. No matter what we worship, if you go back and look in the idols that were so prominent in ancient history, almost all of them have some aspect of humanity sort of fused onto them. So you get a god who looks sort of like a bird, but has human characteristics as well, things like that. Because in the end, what we're doing is worshiping self. Worshiping gods of our own making who look like us instead of 
thinking of ourselves as people made in the image of God. We refashion God in our own image, and we worship that form. And then verses 24 and 25, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So they said, we're not going to honor God, we're not going to worship God, we're going to worship ourselves, we're going to honor our own bodies. How many times in the last months, years, and decades have you heard someone say, well, self-love, that comes first. The popular song decades ago, learning to love yourself, it's the greatest love of all. No, it is not. Just don't go there. (laughs) It's not. And we hear that, though, and, and we're, we're trying to not worship God who revealed himself in the things that he's created. So we start worshiping ourselves in the things that he has created. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Essentially, God is saying, if you want to worship physical bodies, if you want to worship yourself, then in the end, your so-called worship will actually defile yourself. Because here's what they were doing, and here's what we do when we choose to sin. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, they knew him, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And again, this is original sin. This is what lies at the heart of all disobedience to God. We could walk through the Ten Commandments right now, which is kind of what Paul is about to do at the end of Romans chapter 1. And without exception, every single want of obedience or to or transgression of the law of God that is expressed there is just one more way of worshiping and serving the creature, ourselves rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Every single transgression, every single want of obedience. Now just a couple of things before I read on. First of all, we're going to come back to this chapter a little bit later in our study of Genesis. There are other things that we will need to deal with, and they will lead us back here. So we'll come back to it, but we'll be looking at it from a different perspective. Second, and I've already said this several times, I want you to keep in mind um, what I've already said. Paul is painting in broad strokes. Even to the church at Rome in the day when he's writing this letter, he's not pointing at particular individuals in the church at Rome and saying, well, those people are like that. He's making the point that in turning away from God's revelation of himself in creation, mankind has turned. Our culture has turned away from God. In case you've never made the connection, culture, cult, it's where the words, they're related. It's the same thing. Um, It's a false religion very often that turns away from true faith in God. And our culture has been doing that wholesale for decades now, turning away from God, seeking instead to worship and serve ourselves. And finally, and this is maybe the most important of these little caveats that I'm giving, when we read through lists, like the one that I'm about to read through, 
we have a tendency to apply those lists to all the people who are sitting around us. Every pastor has had the experience where he preached on Ephesians 5 and he was talking about that part that says, husbands, love your wives, wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Her wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And you can just see it. These couples are sitting there and at some point one of them kind of looks at the other one. And what's going through their head in that moment is, I am so glad that he is here or she because he really needed to hear this. This sermon is just right for him. And we do that. We read through these lists of sins and we think, oh, yeah, well, I'm glad so-and-so was there because, man, that should have really been a pointed thing for him or her. Okay, don't do that. Not ever, but especially not here in Romans chapter 1. There is a point, a barb to what I'm about to read, a, a hook. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's it. And that should nail every last one of us sitting here in this building because that's the point. The words they and their here in the end of Romans chapter 1, are not meant to be collapsing contexts. As if, well, he started off talking about they, and that was kind of a broader group, and then it got a little narrower and a little narrower and a little narrower, and now we're just talking about this one group of people. That is not true. The word is designed to point to all people, not just other people. And in the context here in Romans, it's designed to point beyond ourselves and all the way to Christ. So don't listen to this with someone else's ears and someone else's heart. Listen with your own. Verse 26 and all the way to the end of the chapter. We don't have time to deal with this in detail. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they, we, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them, us, up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, Sometimes, like I said, we look at this as a funnel that's getting narrower, this collapsing context idea. But in reality, if you look at the way these lists tend to go in Scripture, they tend to go the other way. There's more of this expansive, and we see that here. There are these verses that some people have taken from this context, not always used in the wrong way, but have often used in a problematic way, and then ignored what comes after. But what comes after is this, they, and I'm just going to use we from now on. We were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. We are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We are gossips. Throw that one into the bag with the rest of all of the sins that are listed here. We are gossips. 
slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though we know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, we not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. That is all of those things. Some people have made the point about certain sins in that list and said, well, according to the Old Testament, people who do that deserve to die. And that's true. But according to the New Covenant, according to the New Testament, if you are a gossip or a slanderer or malicious, any of those things, covetous, anyone who's involved in any of those things deserves to die. And we not only do them, we also give approval to those who practice them. So let that sink in. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, so have you. Everyone in this room, everyone, period. And when it comes to God's revelation of himself through the things that have been made, Romans chapter 3, verse 12 says it all. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Just sometime go through Romans 1 to 3 and look for the word all. It's an adventure. So while it may be true, when you look at a list of sins like that, there might be some sins on that list that you personally and I personally have not committed we have all committed some of them, and both in creation and in the word of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. One more thing, we cannot fall into the trap of thinking that because everyone is a sinner, then no one really is. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Which is a pretty definitive statement. All have sinned, and all are sinners, and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul then went on with a list not unlike the list that we just read. He said, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, fornicators, pornea in Greek, which applies to all forms of sexual sin, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the king of God, the kingdom of God. This is the word of God. And nature itself, together with the word, leave us no excuse. But as we saw in the Belgic Confession, we know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. But second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. So yes, our inability, our refusal to see and worship the God who has clearly revealed himself through his creation makes it abundantly clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the gospel. The word of God makes it still more clear that we are justified. We are made righteous, justified righteous 
same word, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it is true. It is the word of God, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I recently led, read a blog post where David Fetis, used to be the Back to God Hour pastor, wrote, unrepentant sexual sin leads to hell. He's absolutely right. But you can just take one of those words out of there and it's still absolutely right. Unrepentant sin of any description leads to hell. People who continue in their sin without repentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the righteousness of God that is revealed to us in the gospel. And such were some of you, Paul says, after giving that list. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were made clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. Those sins been washed away. All of our sins, as I'm going to say in just a minute, have been completely forgiven because of the blood of Christ that was shed to wash us. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart to belong to God. Where once you were by nature a child of wrath, even as the rest and the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, God washed you in the blood of Christ. And then he said, by the way, now you're mine. You belong to me. I have set you apart for myself. You were justified. You were made righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Another part in the Heidelberg Catechism, it talks about this understanding that because of what Christ has done and the way that he has cleansed us by his blood, God no longer sees us as sinners condemned and under his wrath. He sees us just as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Jesus Christ was obedient for us. That's the gospel. That's what it means to come to Christ by faith and be washed and sanctified and justified. There's more. But while the creation may be God's first word that leaves us completely without excuse, it was not his last. And that's why the Apostle Paul began, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So turn to him, trust in him, call upon the name of the Lord, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And you will be washed and sanctified and justified. You will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as the pointedness of this list of sins strikes us and reminds us that we are sinners, remind us also by your word and by your spirit 
by the elements of which we will partake at this table in just a minute, that we are washed in the blood of Christ. We are sanctified, set apart to belong to you. And you see us not as sinners, but Father, as those who have been as perfectly righteous as Jesus was righteous for us. Help us, Father, to live in the joy of that assurance and confession that we are yours. You are in us, we are in you, and in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.